Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, conductor Kaylin Marcel Manson and first chair violin Michi Wianco of the New England Repertory Orchestra, Nero, whose aim is to dismantle the exclusivity of symphonic music and seeks to empower, feature, and champion artists of color and focus on the presence of their orchestral musicians and their work in the greater community. Nero's going to burn it all down while fiddling at the Shea in Great Falls this weekend, and that's my last dad joke for the day. But first, cows. Lots of cows. Time for another Local Hero Spotlight with Phil Corman from CISA, the Local Hero folks. At Angie Facey from Breezy Knoll Farm and Our Family Farms Milk. Full disclosure, CISA is an underwriter. I don't know if Our Family Farms, the milk is an underwriter of NEPM, but I will also fully disclose that apart from when we get raw milk at the farm near us, all of the milk in the Belmonte household is Our Family Farms. Love it. But give us an overview, Phil, of, of what we're, uh, we're going to experience here today. Well, we're lucky enough to be here with Angie, and it's really an important time in this dairy business for them because they have put their heart, soul, and a lot of dollars into having control over the processing of their own milk. So what they like to say is it's from cow... To creamery. To cop... To kid. Because Angie has three kids, too. Yeah, nice. And we're in the barn here in Leiden at Breezy Knoll, and uh, we're looking... It's breakfast time! All these cows. How many cows are in here right now? There's about 125 milking, and then at the end of the barn, we have another 20-ish dry cows and springing heifers. What do you mean by dry cows? They don't drink alcohol? No. um, When a cow reaches the end of her lactation, we dry her off. She gets like a two-month vacation until she's ready to have her next calf. Uh Uh-huh. Did you grow up? doing dairy? I did. I grew up on a dairy farm in Worcester County. We milked about 90 cows and then after I graduated college I met Randy and the rest is history and I've been in Leiden ever since. Is this rumor true that you brought your cows with you? I did. Was it a dowry? It it was not a dowry. My my parents had decided to exit the business because they were at retirement age and my um, younger brother didn't want to milk cows anymore. He just started raising beef on their farm and we bought all of our, uh, all my parents' cows and brought them out here. So Uh we built a barn and milked a lot of cows. And it's a beautiful drive to come up here to the farm. It's sort of north of Greenfield. Harrowing if you have an engine like in my terrible car. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty hilly, but you didn't even know about Leiden growing up. I, I did not know Leiden existed, so until I, I met Randy. What made you want to marry somebody else also in the dairy business? You One tra- would hope it was love. <laughs> Apart from love. Was that what attracted you? Was there is there like an online dating app for people who are in dairy? Dairy there, meeting dairy? Yeah. There there is an online dating app, but we got married way before all of that started. I, I don't know, like being a farm kid, you are, are a different kind of person. You know, you work seven days a week and that's expected and you care for the cows better than you care for so- yourself. And, mm-hmm. you know, I saw that in Randy and we're still working just as hard. But yes, we love each other very much. People who raise cows as kids get very attached to their cows and this is literally the first happy cow story that we've had everyone else has had to separate from their herds and like there's always tears so it's kind of a really cool thing but not unexpected when you say like you brought your herd with you yeah yes there is definitely a lot of heartbreak in this industry you know when a cow comes to the end of a productive life she does go for um, beef. I wish we could have every single cow die on our farm, you know, but we can't. I did have a really special cow to me. Her name was Reese, and I had to put her down last October. Um, she actually had thyroid cancer. She was 16. Oh, wow. She was my baby, yeah. She wasn't milking her last few years. She was just a pet around the farm, but um, it was time for her. But overall, you've had a, 
a positive cow store. You didn't have to sell the entire herd and go into a new no. business like so many of the other farmers and people that we've talked to. But were there right. farmers around where you grew up where that was happening? I mean, clearly that was happening with your farm because your parents were getting out of it. Have you seen that a lot where you were? Oh, everywhere, here? everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. Um, we moved to Spencer in 1981 and there were 25 dairy farms. And 20 years later, there, it, there were less than three. And I don't even know if there's any now. It's all over New England. Phil Corman from CESA. In the last 25 years in Massachusetts, we've lost two out of three dairy farms. And that is happening throughout New England, as Angie stated. And a lot of it is comes down to federal government policy, again, supporting larger farms getting larger. Because I think a lot of people might not know this. The federal government controls milk prices. So when a lot of people, progressives even, think that if the government were have more controls in a more socialistic way, it could be great. However, in the milk industry, it's not great for small farms. Yeah, Angie and I were talking about this before, and while we don't quite understand it, Angie was sharing with me that in the 30s, that's when price control started for milk nationally, and it did sort of help small farms, but at this point, everyone agrees it has sort of driven the smaller dairy farm out of business. They set the, the price that we get for our raw milk, and they don't take into consideration any of our cost of production. Farms in the western part of this, the country have economies of scale, things are cheaper out there, land is right around their farm. Here, you know, we have to drive eight to 10 miles to our corn land and, you know, land is getting scoffed up by housing developments and whatnot. And we do rent some land and some people want hundreds of dollars an acre and to grow corn silage, we just can't afford that. One way that the local dairy industry has tried to fight back against the industry writ large is through our family farms. So it's not you and you're the general manager of our family farms. It's farms plural. It's more than one farm getting together cooperatively to make this happen. Tell us a little bit about how Our Family Farms works. Yes, so Our Family Farms started in 1997. Um, we started with eight farms, actually. So all of our milk was delivered to Pioneer Dairy, and it was bottled just Our Family Farms milk in the container. But it was done at another facility. So we had some control, but it was really expensive to have the segregated route deliver to them. So it wasn't really profitable. Over time, um, Pioneer went out of business. It was difficult to find someone else that would work with us. We ended up having to work with Guidas, and we worked with them for a long time. They had a great quality product, but unfortunately they couldn't segregate our milk. He's coming in here. We'll have to take off. Here comes a pause. tractor. Pause in that no! story. Yeah. Coming to get us. And this is like the really sl slow tractor. Yeah, yeah. What's in this tractor, Angie? Uh, it's called TMR, it's a total mixed ration, so it's corn silage, haylage, and grain all mixed up. So every bite the cow takes will be the same. It's the feed truck! Basically, yeah. The cows don't have as many options as a normal food truck, but yeah. they like what they get. <laughs> I love a good food truck myself. So as I was saying, Guidas, we worked with them for a long time, and then last summer they decided to not work with us anymore, which um, put us in a real bind because our creamery wasn't finished. So we had 30 days notice. Um, fortunately, Midland and New York stepped in and they were able to help us, but we lost a lot of sales because we didn't have all of our products on the shelf. They're I remember that. I would go to the store and be like, what the hell? Where's all yeah, my, my our I Family know, Farms milk? I know. So, you know, we, we squeaked by and then we finally opened our creamery on April 5th, a few short weeks ago and 
it's been crazier than ever. <laughs> Is that why the new half gallons are in a different type of container? I brought yes. that home yesterday to my family and everybody was like, what is this milk? <laughs> but they saw yes. the, they still saw the same logo on there, but it's in yes. a different type of container. So because we had to go from the beautiful cardboard packaging, you know, we didn't have the extra 200,000 to put in a separate filling line for the cardboard. We had to have something that would stand out. I did so much research and I found the PET plastic and it's recyclable and it's beautiful. I can't wait till we have flavored milk in it because it's going to look so pretty. But mm. um, we've had a lot of positive feedback on the container. People really like it. So hopefully your family did too. Yeah. <laughs> had some this morning. So I know, Angie, while it came to fruition last month, this is something your family and our family pharmacist wanted to do for 20 plus years. Why is it so hard to do this? The infrastructure cost is tremendous. The, in the beginning, when we were a co-op of eight, if we pooled all of our milk together and built a dairy or a creamery off farm, we would be considered a pool plant right away. So we would have to pay the federal government about $20,000 a month just because we were pooling our milk. By having it on farm at Breezy Knoll Farm and owned by Breezy Knoll Farm, we don't have to pay the federal milk marketing order. Once we reach Breezy Knoll Farm's capacity of production, then we can bring in Gould Farm Milk, they're the other farm in our co-op, to supplement whatever sales we have over our production. So there's only two family farms left? Sadly, there are only two left, yeah. Is, is it because of the, that federal pool that there's only two left, or is there other reasons? Well, yes, I mean, low, low milk price has caused some to go out of business, um, or um, retirement, they're at retirement age and there's no younger generation coming along. And through attrition, we've, you know, kind of weaseled our way down to, to two, unfortunately. You know, you can go to any mainline supermarket and get milk. Isn't most milk somehow part of the local milk system? Them. Absolutely. Um, Massachusetts is actually a milk deficit state. So we have, I think we can only produce, I think the number was around 20% of our milk needs in Massachusetts. So we have to bring in milk from Vermont, New Hampshire, New, um, New York. But yes, it is basically in this region. The difference with us is that, you know, we own the creamery. And when you purchase our family farm's milk, you're directly impacting our farms right here in Franklin County. That It will help us stay in business. It will help us keep open space. We do business with so many local vendors. I can't buy grain on Amazon, you know, our, or our vet is local, our fuel is local, all those kinds of, of people we um, do business with locally. So, and we're the only milk processing plant in Franklin County. So it's kind of exciting because your milk is super hyper local. You know, our, our closest store, I believe is Foster's and we're like eight miles from them. That's pretty cool. You know, we've been talking about the federal controls of the prices. What causes it to fluctuate like that? Is it supply and demand? And is it the big farms out west are just pumping the market filled with milk? Or how does it work? So I took a class in college on milk pricing, and I still don't understand it. <laughs> so we're not going to learn it today, folks. <laughs> and, and honestly, most people don't really understand. There's so many factors, you know, exports, um, the value of the dollar, how much cheese is in storage, how much butter. It's just really, really confusing. But like a 2% increase in milk production can tank our price overnight, practically. What about a skim percent increase in milk production? Stop it. Not that kind of 2%, I see. Don't drink 2% or skim. Whole milk all the way. So there's two state programs that are helpful to dairy farms, and one is the dairy tax credit, and then the other is the food security infrastructure grants. I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about how they impact you in a good way. Yes. So we petitioned the state back in 2007 and 8 for the dairy tax credit. So essentially we get a tax credit at the end of the year for 
staying in business. That has probably kept us in business. Without that, we wouldn't have been able to keep going. When the cost for you to produce the milk is less than the price you can get from the federal price, then the tax credit kicks in. Correct. If we're getting a really high price, then we don't get the tax credit. And then one of the best things that came out of COVID was the Food Security Infrastructure Grant Program. Um, when it was announced like that May or June of 2020, I just thought, oh, wow, this was written for me. So I spent hours and hours writing applications. I submitted one for Breezy Knoll and for Our Family Farms, and together we got a million dollars, which, wow, to the average person, a million dollars is just an absorbent amount of money. But for our farm, it's, it's really not. The creamery, you know, we put every dime of that into it. And then, unfortunately, with cost overruns and supply chain issues, everything took so much longer, so much money and we're about 800,000 over, so. We are gonna be debating the farm bill again. Is there any movement towards supporting smaller farms like Breezy Knoll here in Leiden on a federal level? I think the challenge always is, is that 3% of the farms in the United States uh, account for almost 47% of all production of everything, not dairy, but just everything. And then the bottom 82% in size produce 18%. So. The outsized farms have outsized impact, and the farm bill tends to favor commodities, which are things that can sit on the shelf for years, versus, I'll say it, food <laughs> that needs to be consumed within a certain time period. So there is movement afoot, and there are groups like the National Agricultural Sustainability Organizations working together, but it's an uphill battle. This is the only beverage that comes with protein and is grown by our neighbors. So I think it's so important that the land mass that is controlled by dairy farms, even though we're down to under 120 in Massachusetts, they're just a vital backbone of agriculture in the state. Yes, every every milk around is, is local, but our family farms is supporting farms that you know, farms that you can come see every single one of my cows. You can pet Molly if you want. Yes! Don't attempt. Let's go. Yeah. Okay. Hey, Molly. Which one's yes. name is Ninja? Ninja. Hey, Ninja. Yes. We hey. should train together. Sure. On guard. I'll let you try my Wu-Tang style. Her baby's name is Ninjago. Oh, <laughs> the kids are going to love that one. Yes. yes, we name all of our cows. I feel that it, it uh, helps us learn them better, and they each have a personality. Some of them love you, some of them want to run away from you. <laughs> Most of them want to lick you to death. It looks like you have several varieties of cow here, we, too. We do have three breeds here at Breezy Knoll Farm. We have the traditional black and white Holsteins, which is what I grew up with. Um, and my husband's family had Holsteins and Brown Swiss. And I always wanted a Brown Swiss growing up. And then when I came out here and we got them and I had to try to get them pregnant, I wasn't as excited. <laughs> or trying to bottle feed them and train them on a bucket when they're little is really, really difficult. They have opinions. Oh, yeah, they're really stubborn, <laughs> so. Um, and then the uh, red cows are the Ashiers. Um, one of our employees, Ashley, that works for us, has her cows here um, as well. Oh, cool. oh, that's cool. Oh yeah, I want to show you the robots. Yeah, let's go robots. look at the robots. Let's look at robots. milk robots. This is the best day ever. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yes, we're about to watch a robot milk a cow. More with Angie Facey from Breezy Knoll Farm and Our Family Farm's Milk in Leiden coming up. And later in the show, maestro Kaylin Marcel Manson and at first chair violin Michi Wianco with uh, of the New England Repertory Orchestra, otherwise known as Nero, who are working on burning down all the racial and societal barriers surrounding symphonic music. They're playing The Shea this weekend, and I'm too excited to actually speak. But you're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Trying to find people that want to milk cows is difficult and you know you it would take 20 man hours a day and that was just too much so we started building the robotic barn actually in 2018 right after my husband had an accident and we realized we couldn't we were up to 190 cows and we just couldn't handle that anymore so we have robotic milkers we have robotic scrapers so they're basically like a Roomba for our barn oh nice and we just saw one of the cows doing its business over there yes so the Roomba will go take care of Camelot's poop in a minute and then we we have um, Juno, which is a feed pusher, and Juno does it on the hour, every hour, pushes up the feed, so it encourages the cows to get up and eat more, and that's how they make more milk. Angie Facey from Breezy Knoll Farm here in Leiden, where we're surrounded by cows. We can smell the dairy air. So this is the milk robot? Yes. So It's called a Lely Astronaut? Lely Astronaut. Lely Astronaut, that's so cool. It's funny because when I graduated college, in 2001, we saw a video of a milking robot in the Netherlands, and it was like, oh, that would never be mainstream. And here we are 20 couple years later, and we have them. So, so what we're looking at is this you know, giant red, what looks like a, a robotic computer thing. And then we can see the four legs of the cow, oh. an emergency off switch. And we can see the cow's udders with, udder. oh, it's one udder? Yeah. And teats, teats, right. Teats. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that in New England public media. Um, how does it find the teats? It has a laser? A laser. <laughs> in essence, a sophisticated heat beam, which we called a laser. And it finds Dr. Evil did not invent it. Oh, wait. Yes, you see the red line that, uh, well, she's, she's up. Oh, my God. We're, look, we're looking at the red laser finding the teats so that this robot yeah, can hook up to it. It's Well, it's oh, spraying her. She just... It's post-dipping her because she just finished, but there's somebody, I think Josie's on her way in when right. this one goes out, so we can watch start to finish. But um, So when the cow calves for the first time, we put a collar on her with a transponder so that when she walks into the, the box, the, the robot knows who she is. The transponder gives us rumination, um, so we know if she's eating well or not. It gives us milk temperature, uh, the actual robot activity level. So. That's why you saw the breeder here. He was here breeding a couple cows that were going crazy last night. Um, it, it gives us so much information. So when they first calve, we bring them in and we actually, it's like a video game. We have to kind of tell the arm where to go. And then the, the robot remembers where her teats are and uses the laser to help find her quarters. This is crazy. This is so neat. And the other part I think is true is that the, the we're getting sprayed with all sorts of stuff that's seemingly water, not Is that the milk. cows choose to come to get milk when they're ready. So they just line up when they're ready. Yeah, this cow, Josie, seemed eager to get in here. Yeah, she's got her leg in the wrong spot. Josie, move your leg. You get some cows that are actually really smart, and they're like, hey, if I go in there, I get a little bit of grain. So then they want to keep coming back in. The laser is activated. It's latched on now. We watched the laser latch onto the teats. That was amazing. Attach. 
We call well, it attach. Attach, not latch. Yeah. That's nursing mothers. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Attached. The unit has attached. Milk is going into the whey jar in here, and this will measure the weight of the milk. It will also take a little sample and give us her somatic cell count, and then it will also tell me her fat and protein level. So if she's a fresh cow and her fat's like really high, I can tell if she has ketosis because ketosis for cows is really bad. And then and you can like a treater. readout of like what, how all the cows are doing and you can yep. take it. Yep. I, I actually have an app on my phone. Wow. And I get notifications on my watch. Like if someone's <laughs> in heat, I'm like, oh, ping. I know who to call. You know, I call the breeder. So, you know, before it was hard to treat the cows, but now we can easily treat them. So like if a cow has a fever, if a cow has... Um, high somatic cell, we'll use aspirin instead of going right for antibiotics. But it's really nice that we get all that information because we're able to manage our cows more. What so. did you, when you were a kid doing this, did you just hand milk these and have to like feel it out the old fashioned way or what? No, no, I'm not that old. <laughs> <laughs> no, we had a parlor so, you know, we could milk uh, four on each side, so eight at a time. Uh-huh. Yeah, so the computer says they think she's going to make 36 pounds this milking, um, and it will show, like, this is what each quarter is making. So she's um, already up to 12.4. 12.4, yep. That's coming just... fast and furious. Yes. <laughs> you know, for a first calf heifer, she's milking pretty well. Well done, Josie. You're doing great. <laughs> Although it is really weird that my kids are going to never have to milk cows. Mm-hmm. Just make them do it. Yeah, for fun. Yeah, get them a bucket, put them out there. <laughs> it's called getting in touch with your history. Yeah. <laughs> Do you choose or do they choose their preferred music as they're being milked? We don't have any music playing. Uh, yeah, we should. You need, you need a DJ for the barn. They do like country music more than like hard rock music. I think they like classical music. Yeah. They like Mozart. Yeah. Stop it. All right, well, before we go, we should go check out the baby cows because yeah. Khalees loves baby animals, as do we all, I think. I mean, who doesn't love baby animals? Right. Everyone needs more cute in their life. These are big babies compared to the goat babies that we saw. Well, they're 80 to 100 pounds when they're born. <laughs> yeah. so. Wow. so this is Raspberry. Oh. Hi, Raspberry. Oh, Her mom's name is Rhubarb. Uh. And she's related to Reese, my old girl that we had to put down. So I'm super happy about oh. that. I have lots of um, offspring from her. This is actually a distant cousin of hers. She is um, out of a cow named Rainbow, and I haven't come up with an R name yet that I like. Of course, Randy Rainbow. Do you know him? He's super callous, fragile, egocentric, braggadocious. He's so good. <laughs> I thought you meant my Randy. <laughs> no, but you're Randy and Rainbow. There you go. I don't know if he would appreciate a cow named after him, but <laughs> yeah, they're super sweet. Well, let's go see the processing before we uh, say our farewells. Okay. And this is the new processing facility right here. The new. barn looks new. So it actually was a dry cow barn that we converted to the creamery. This is uh, my office help, Kathy. Hi, Kathy. Hi. Monty. Monty. Yes. You can peek in. Oh, those do look great. Yeah, these are the new half gallons. Yeah. And you got a new la- design on the label too, I noticed. Yes. It pops a little so bit more. So on the labels, each cow is actually one of our cows that's hand-drawn by an artist. Oh, yeah. Nice. So they're running the 1% right now, and the Swiss on the front is Wyoming. Who's on my whole milk that I get? 
Guinness, one of my favorites. Nice. Yes. Tastes like Guinness. <laughs> Creamy, delicious. I wanted to put like the cow's names on the label, but I'm like, Guinness. Uh, yeah. I probably shouldn't put that on the front label. I don't know if there's any copyright issues or, or whatnot, but. Nice. So this is just like a bottling facility. So like, it gets yep. into the tanks, into the different percentages, and then. So yeah, we start with the raw milk on the dairy side, and we pump it over to a raw tank on this side, on the creamery side, and then they pasteurize it. They separate it so it's skim and cream and then we bottle the skim then we add to make one percent two percent and then standardized whole and we we just started making some new products which our family farms has never had so we're super excited we made half and half and heavy cream oh, good good like whipping cream Heavy cream is really good in coffee, too. And if you uh, have one of those frothing things, brevets oh, are the yes. way to go. Oh, yummy. And can I put in a request for when you do the flavored milk? Can you do coffee? Yeah. Oh, we would love to. Yes, so please. flavors are next on our list, but we have to perfect the recipe. Chocolate milk doesn't come from brown cows. That's what I grew up thinking. Does it? I need more brown cows. <laughs> Wait, so do my red cows have strawberries? Yes. Oh, all this time. Well, thank you for this wonderful tour, Angie Facey, from Breezing Old Farm here in Leiden and from Our Family Farms. Thank this... you for letting us pet your cows. Oh, yeah. absolutely. This has been Anytime. utterly delightful. Oh, my God. Just like... I've been waiting the whole time. I bet you have. I, was like, I mean, I'm pretty sure that you thought of that when, when it was announced we were going oh, to yeah, for sure. Farm. You're like, I have to get this one in yeah. no matter what. That and the derriere one, I couldn't, I couldn't yes. resist. The interview has been very moving for me. Thank you. Oh, they all joined in by the end. <laughs> Up next, conductor Kaylin Marcel Manson and the first chair, violin Michi Bianco of the New England Repertory Orchestra, Nero, burning down the house and the society that built that house at the Shea Theater this weekend. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. The New England Repertory Orchestra continues its work championing the voices of diverse composers and performers with a world premiere Symphony No. 1, Banishing Grief by acclaimed pianist and composer Felix Girard, followed by one of the most moving symphonies of the 20th century, Dmitry Shostakovich's Symphony No. 5. With these two pieces, Nero celebrates the victory of the human spirit against oppression. Banishing grief tackles mental health as well as a social justice issue and how it relates to processing grief. And Symphony No. 5 follows an individual through tragedy into hopefulness. Both pieces will be performed at the Shea Theater in Great Falls this weekend. And joining us from Nero are the conductor, Kaylin Marcel Manson, and first chair violin, Michi Wianko. Welcome to the Fabulous 413. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. There's local connections with Gerard. Is that part of the reason that you wanted to collaborate with him or just general admirers of his work? It's interesting. Uh, Felix and I worked pretty closely uh, with Barn Opera, which is another, you know, grassroots but like professional music organization in Brandon, Vermont. Um, That you helped to found, right? Yep. I've been the founding music director. Um, but what's really interesting is that Felix was an undergrad at Marlboro College uh, studying piano and composition. And I was the music director at the Putney School at the, around the time when he was finishing at Marlboro. And our paths didn't cross at all. <laughs> Completely. Just nope. And but then all of a sudden, you know, years later, I end up being at Clark and he ends up being the actually assistant music director for a period of time at Barn Opera. And 
uh, he was writing a number of chamber operas and art song cycles and and I was I'm like Nero is coming I'm like we need we're gonna start writing and you know start com- commissioning new pieces and I thought then I'm like next season we need to have you write something for us and he had never written a symphony before uh, but it was something that he always had wanted to do and uh, he asked me he actually asked me if it could be a vocal symphony I said yes and then he asked me if he could write the text and I said absolutely let's just work it and it came from that is the text in english or what language yes, is it in yes it's in english and you're a, you are a, an excellent singer as well so this is uh something that's totally in your area of expertise Kate. oh yeah, yeah 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 i love i mean voice is my first love but the the marriage of a song and symphony is something that i i really 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 love i don't know if we're going to do any of those Mahler ones anytime soon, but this one is nice. I mean, and I love Mahler. I love Mahler. Yeah, love but Mahler. the look that you had on your face when you said Mahler was just beautiful. I wish that over the course of radio we could actually convey that, but hopefully they understand by my excitement <laughs> what it was. They could hear it in the fry toast. So we've been jokingly saying uh, Nero burning it down and New England Repertory Orchestra. That is not our joke. That is your joke, oh, yeah. Kaylin, right? Like you could, this is this is your brainchild, right? Mm-hmm. And this is kind of the purpose of the orchestra. Yes. Tell us about the mission of what made you want to start this orchestra, call it this, and what it, its objective is to do. So it's funny because there were a number of different incarnations um, of what this might have been. And this this really did start from a number of conversations that I had with many local musicians, actually people all over the country during the sort of shutdown of the pandemic. And we, we wanted, originally wanted to try to find a way for all of the different, not just orchestra, but opera and chamber music and theater to have a, something that was more akin to, I'm just going to say it's more akin to what I experienced as, a, as what's called a fest singer in the, in the German house system, was something that we don't really even have in the States, this idea that you could have full-time employment and really be ensconced living in a community full-time and become recognizable as one of the living, working artists of that community. Once again, one of the beautiful things about having state-funded art programs. Yeah, Y'all. in Germany. We don't do that <laughs> very well here. But. No, and so it, it became evident uh, that the orchestra would be the first iteration of that to come to fruition, and we were trying to figure out it was like New England repertory opera, New England repertory this, but then I was like orchestra. Let's start with the orchestra, and we're like, oh, that's Nero. And at first, I was like, well, you know, Nero is Italian for black, honey. <laughs> <laughs> so yes. I'm with it. I'm with it. Yes. And they were like, okay, we'll feel that. But then someone was like, well, but we were looking at on it came back to when I was trying to like going to graphic designers to help to have them design the logo. And they came up with this like logo that had Nero and the violin. And so the <laughs> so the principal basis was like, wait a minute, you know that's gonna beg the joke, right? So I'm like, well, let's just turn it to the skin. He's like, Do they have like flames that can shoot from the violin? I'm like, you know what? <laughs> yes. I'm like, let me ask. And they put flames and like, oh, it's burning. I was like, look, we're just gonna turn right into that skid and we're gonna go with it um and and truth be told that you know there there were even amongst i would just say even amongst artists of color you know even you know artists of marginalized communities there's there's always this amongst us like how we're going to approach it right how are we going to try to uh infiltrate the industry and change from the inside or are we going to come from the outside and and 
completely jettison it. And you do need, I mean, even civil rights in this country, you need pressure from both ends to make it work. Um, I, being someone that kind of was on the fast track in my 20s um, through what we would call a talent pipeline, I had a, I had a real soul... Uh, a soul searching moment around 2008 where I realized that I was I was offered the opportunity a real major opportunity that everyone who's a singer wants and I realized that it was not congruent at all with where I was going you know I was offered a contract in a major opera house for a, a role that I'd already done 50 times but it was for five years oh. from that day and I was like it's 2008, you're offering me something in 2013, I might not even be the same person, the same artist, but this is the way the industry works. And so it took, and so for me, that was the, that was the bellwether. It's like, okay, I actually need to get back in control, get back and center myself in, into my why, into my purpose. Um, and this is really, this work is really at the heart of the purpose. It's, it's actually, there isn't a divide between the people in the community and the professionals. We actually are the same, but something about the way we've structured high culture in this, in our sort of cultural paradigm, separates that. And I'm not going to say that some of it is the establishment's fault. But some of it is our fault as artists. You know, we want to buy into it because that's how we make money. That's how we prove ourselves. But we actually don't need to do that. But we need organizations like Nero that show us that there's another way, that there's another model, that you can actually be an undergraduate in music school, play at a really high level, and have an orchestra say, yes, we believe in you, and you can play with us. That you don't have to prove yourself by going through all these competitions and all these things just to be accepted in this art form. So I know that was long-winded, but that's, that's the idea. Worth it. Worth every minute. <laughs> that's Kaylin Marcel Manson, who is a conductor and one of the founders of the New England Repertory Orchestra. The first chair violin is somebody who went to the highest upper echelons of musical education and still shares the same mission of, I guess, in some ways demystifying, uh, making more egalitarian this type of music. Michi Wianko, who lives in Gill and is also the founder of Antenna Cloud Farm, which you will be hearing a lot about as the season progresses throughout the course of the summer. But um, as as Kaylin was saying, you know, I went to an open rehearsal of the orchestra at the Shea, which isn't something that people who aren't musicians often get to do. And it was amazing to see behind the veil how it works. And and then the performance itself was one of the most incredible things I've ever seen at that theater last year. I'm very excited Again, uh, this Saturday at 7 o'clock, it's you pay what you can, a suggested donation of $5, trying to make it very open. But you, Michi, went to Juilliard. You're part of Yo-Yo Ma's Silk Road Ensemble. Rhiannon Giddens' Silk Road Ensemble. Rhiannon Giddens' now yeah. Silk Road Ensemble. Although I, she's I, she's I, artistic director, Pulitzer notwithstanding. Yes, yes just yes, got a Pulitzer yes. yesterday. There was some new news about yes. the, the Silk Road Ensemble that... Uh, I I couldn't hear very well, but was in the newscast right before this, and I almost scared the death to uh, scared you to death that Rhiannon Giddens was no longer the artistic director. But what what drives you to to share this mission, both with mm -hmm. Antenna Cloud Farm and what you're doing, and with Nero Orchestra? You could theoretically play mm -hmm. with anyone anywhere. Well, what Kalen just described um, in his journey really really resonates with me. Like I think that there for anybody who's doing the work of activation or trying to push back against the status quo of any industry or culture, um, I feel like it's almost a given that that person has to go through 
sometimes a quite intense and difficult period of like inspection of one's own trajectory, right? Like we grew up in the classic Western classical music world on this track, like fast track to success or whatever that might mean, according to, um, you know, given the existing parameters. But in order to like to say no to a gig like that, like a, a, a high end opera company or whatever, like I resonate with that so much. I spent a big part of my life saying no. And it's so painful, you know, stuff that you're trained to say yes to stuff that you've spent your whole life getting ready to say yes to and hoping to be offered, you start saying no to that because it's not in alignment with how you want the music world to look like, how you want what you want your contributions to be to the music world. Um, and so that difficulty in making that decision after you do it, for anybody who's out there going through this right now, if you can say no a few times and just like get that muscle, um, exercise that muscle, it gets easier and easier and it also starts to become very joyful once you start deciding to do things with your life that are in alignment with how your deepest belief system. Then all kinds of worlds start opening up. Like we met. Yeah. The <laughs> Nero is maybe one of the, besides, you know, playing with Rhiannon and Silk Road, Nero is the only other truly, I'd say, Western classical music thing I do. Um, <clears throat> this is the first time I'll be playing Shostakovich. Symphony Number no. Five. Since I was at Juilliard, playing at the Ju with the Juilliard Symphony, and I wouldn't have it any other way. Like, there's a reason why Nero is the is my sort of classical. It's my you know I my my drop into the classical world to get really really deep into this repertoire. Um, <clears throat> Kaylin is a very obviously very talented, but also very strict, very strict maestro, but also very joyful. I'd call you joyfully strict. <laughs> you know, like the standards. Yeah, like, right. Like, <laughs> like the standards are crazy high. Anybody who was at that rehearsal sees that. And then the, the concerts are very, you know, it's very intense. Like we're bringing something very musically intense and I think pretty amazing um, to the table. How did you meet? When? Oh, my God. Um, um, no one remembers. Another <laughs> member, somebody Facebooked me who was in the orchestra. It was, it was the principal bassist, Principal Jamie. bassist, yeah. And, 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 and he was like, oh, lives in Gill. Y'all should talk. Yeah. He saw the Antenna Cloud Farm website, and mm -hmm. then my website was like, I feel a connection. And then, we, and then I checked out your website, and I was like, oh, my goodness. Yeah. And then we just, I think we, we what did I say? We slid in each other's DMs. Is that what kind of <laughs> <laughs> As 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 they say, right? we, we slid up in the DMs and um, and we just started talking. And then, I mean, the only the only concert you could do with us was the was the season finale mm -hmm. last year mm -hmm. because of your schedule and and which was also like the absolute great concert to do. I mean, the the you know the the Nahina Stara harp concerto was like oh. just an amazing piece. And I've never seen somebody play a harp so percussively oh. like and that, used that. it as a percussion and instrument. It was it blew my mind. It but was but but I think that that's the other thing too. Like that that like, you were talking about joyfully strict. Um, but I feel like this is I'm gonna like dovetail this a little bit in the sense that you know like I. I don't care. I'm 40 and I'm fabulous. I turned 40 this year and it's my 20th year conducting. I made my conducting debut back in March at Carnegie Hall. But what was Woo! really interesting about that was that everyone that was up on that stage, you know, all of those choirs essentially, aside from like some of the ringers they brought in to balance some of the sound, were all non-auditioned choirs, right? You know, my mother was singing in the alto two section. Ah. You know, there were grandparents and 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 kids, and and they sang at 
an extremely high level that even the professional orchestra like this was an amazing Verdi Requiem. And I think, you know, when I think about what Nero did in that concert, I mean, I've known Jordan since he was a teen. I'm Jordan's godfather. And I've seen him through all of that trajectory. And so there is that, there's that family feeling, that communal feeling about what Nero does Mm -hmm. that makes it special. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, you do get, people that play with each other for 20 years and they kind of got to know each other. But but I think that that's what makes what we've built together very, very special mm-hmm. is that we it's, it's concentric circles. We all enjoy being together. We know there's a lot of work to do. But when we invite these artists in, I mean, even with the ones that are singing, Maria Brea, you know, just sang. She was the first Venezuelan soprano to sing, first Venezuelan artist to sing with the Boston Phil. She opened her mouth in rehearsal. I'm like, you like practice the music. So Felix's symphony, Yeah. just to interrupt for one second, is just mind-blowingly gorgeous. Yeah, it's gorgeous Like, music. I defy anybody to not ugly cry um, yeah, <laughs> during it. Yeah. And then in rehearsal, so we're, <laughs> no. you know, I'm like focused on bowings and fingerings and let's just kind of execute this piece that we've never seen or heard or played before. Get into rehearsal. Within five minutes, she sings something. The second she opened her mouth, I was like, oh my gosh, I don't even understand what's happening right Like, I can't mm-hmm. believe the level of the singing and the beauty of her voice and the amazingness of this symphony mm-hmm. is very moving. Yeah, and, and, and again, it felt like a family. Yeah. Like, she walked in, gave me a hug, We loved, because we worked together before, and, and we just had this, there was that feeling that everyone is so connected and that we really are there, we're there to make music, but we're also, like, loving on each other through making music. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that, that, you don't find everywhere. And it actually should be that way mm-hmm. everywhere. I think if it was, people would see, not it's not just see themselves in, in the music or see themselves in the performances, but they would know that it's for them. And no matter what their level or their degree of involvement is, and it comes from us. Mm-hmm. I really, I firmly believe that. Mm-hmm. It comes from us, like what we want to do and how we want to do it. Mm-hmm. Well, I so. believe if you come on Saturday, you may get a little glimpse of that love through music. Mm-hmm. The Nero Orchestra, New England Repertory Orchestra performs at 7 o'clock at the Shea Theater. Coming up more with the artistic director and conductor, Kaylin Marcel Manson, and first-year violin, Michi Wianco. You're listening to The Fabulous 4-1. I think Michi's going to play a little bit on the other side. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Free time. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. We are here with members of the New England Repertory Orchestra, otherwise known as Nero, conductor and artistic director, Kayla Marcel Manson, and first chair violin, Michi Wianco, who I think is about to play for us, and I am so excited. Tell us what you're going to play, Michi, because this is kind of the direction you go in with Antenna Cloud Farm, too, taking these, I guess, symphonic instruments or uh, instruments that we think of you studying at Juilliard and improvising around Mm -hmm. them, which doesn't happen as often as you might think. Right. Um, To answer your first question, Monty, I have no idea what I'm about to play. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've been improvising for a while, but more recently... um, because, you know, I run Antenna Cloud Farm uh, music retreat and summer festival series um, and now institute. Um, I have two young children. I teach. I perform. I'm, I'm left with a lot of very little time to be like nurturing my solo career, which used to be my main focus in my before days. <laughs> um, 
So I, I decided that I get a lot of joy being completely present when I'm with my instrument. I typically have my five-string violin, which I think you've seen oh, me play. I plug it in. I use guitar pedals, like effects and stuff. I don't have my, my fun little gadgets with me today. So I just am going to improvise for maybe a minute, if that's cool. Of Perfect. course. Michi Wianco from the New England Repertory Orchestra and the Silk Road Ensemble. That's Michi Wianco on the violin, part of the Nero Orchestra playing for cheap or free (laughs) at the Shea this Saturday. And we're also joined by the conductor and artistic director, Kaylin Marcel Manson. I'm not going to make you sing a solo here, but you um, do have a gorgeous, I mean, if you wanted to, you absolutely (laughs) could. Uh, But you did mention you were conducting at Carnegie Hall. Was, recently, yes. just, just the last few months. Tell us a little bit about that. So, um, Mid America Productions has been do- running a Carnegie Hall residency since 1984 or something like this. Was the for- 40th season, um, and they approached me two years ago to do some to conduct for them. Uh, we were in the middle pandemic or coming out of it, so I was like, oh, "I'm not ready. It's probably, let's wait and see." <laughs> but um, this the concert was uh, the opening of their 40th season, and I conducted uh, Verdi's Requiem, one of the most iconic big pieces. It's beautiful. Of of, of even the, if you aren't enamored with masses like I am. Yeah, mm, yeah. Like it, it, it'll rock your world. I mean, and honestly, I mean, come on. You come into Carnegie Hall and you got four antiphonal trumpets like blaring over the audience. It's <laughs> like you're like. Yeah! <laughs> it's heavy metal. I mean, I remember like I just remember when we had the dress rehearsal and I gave the one downbeat for the DSC or in the whole. I said you get once to the choir and they just had that shockwave thing. Like what just happened to me? <laughs> um, but um, it, and it was it was you know I've done the, I've conducted that piece a number of times. I actually conducted it for my fifteenth anniversary back in twenty eighteen at the. Um, 1894 Auditorium in Northfield, actually, mm-hmm. we did that. Um, it was five choirs together for there. But anyway, um, 
it was weird. It felt like because of all the people on the stage, it felt like a homecoming. And I didn't realize, I didn't realize until I came home and my husband had asked me about sort of the performance. And so he's like, so what's, a, so tell me something about like the history of the Verdi Requiem like at Carnegie Hall. And I'm like, I don't know. Let's look it up. And so you looked, we looked up the performance history, which you can for anything that happens at Carnegie Hall. And we found that the Verdi Requiem had performed, been performed 82 times since it opened in 1891, 82 times. Um, and of those times, only two black people had ever conducted that work. The first person was John Robertson, who's currently teaching at Lynn, uh, Lynn University in Boca Raton, Florida, which my husband is from, interestingly enough. Um, and that was March 19th, 1972. So I was the second black person to conduct that piece in the history of Carnegie Hall almost 50 years later. So it's just an interesting thing. Interesting, interesting, interesting thing. I have a long question, and we're going to try and make it as short as possible. That's good. I feel like symphonic works with vocal are pretty rare. But it's. do you see it, Nero as an avenue to open up people's experiences by using more vocal pieces, since voice is the most accessible instrument that anyone mm. has? Interesting. Um, I think... I, I'm going to double down a little bit on that. I, it's not that symphonic pieces are, are with voices are rare. It's just that, I'm just going to be perfectly honest, they can be very expensive to put on because you have to hire vocal soloists and or you have to get choirs in to do it. Um, and what I think Nero has done a really great job of is that we po constantly partner actually with community choruses all the time. Like we're performing a, a what is it, a a bucketless piece called the Dvorak Stabat Mater. I saw it for two nights. Um, for, you know, literally two nights, but we're working with the Keene Chorale and the Concord Chorale, two community choirs in New Hampshire, to do it. And so there is that connectivity so that we can get people to see it. And here's the other thing. The community choirs. Those people are the community, and they're going to have their families come and hear that work. And that's Nero's at the nexus of that. Nero is going to be at the Shea Theater this Saturday, 7 o'clock, banishing grief, exploring all of the emotional hardships that we all have been facing via music. I basically cannot wait mm -hmm. for this event. The artistic director and conductor, Kaylin Marcel Manson, has been joining us, as has Michi Wianko, my neighbor up the hill, Yay. and Gil from Antenna Cloud Farm, and we'll be hearing a lot more about that as that season progresses. Tomorrow in the fabulous 413, there's been no shortage of language-based drama locally, and we'll take two of the most recent cases head-on. We'll talk with former East Hampton superintendent candidate Vito Perone about his take on the, quote, ladies controversy and whether or not that was actually what cost him a job opportunity. And we'll talk with Merriam-Webster editor Emily Brewster about the word field, in which Smith College's social work department has decided to stop using it due to its connections to slavery and colonization. Our director is Tony, our silent glue done. Our engineer is Betsy on her third outfit, Cordis. Our technical team is Bart, think that'll end poorly, Rankin. Kara, you're going to put that in the script today, aren't you? Foster and punk rock dubay. Musical thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, Suitcase Junket, Michi Bianco, and Kaylin Marcel Manson. I'm Kali Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. See you tomorrow on The Fabulous 413.